0: Snuff production.
1: Hello, welcome to the Friday episode of The Briefing. It's May the 7th. I'm Tom Tilley, joined by Jan Fran.
0: Hello. Today on the show, an MP from the conservative side of politics who is making a very bold argument for Indigenous reconciliation.
2: The Constitution still has no reference to the 60,000 years of history of this uh, continent. That is a huge hole in our Constitution.
1: So that's Andrew Bragg. He's only been in Parliament for two years and he's arguing that the Coalition go the same way as Labor and the Greens. That's right.
0: His book also includes a recommendation from the PM, Scott Morrison. That interview in the second half of the show. First, big stories of the day.
1: Sydney's brought back COVID restrictions as authorities try and solve the mystery of how a local man and his partner caught COVID.
0: Yeah, so genomic testing has revealed that They actually have the same strain of the virus as a recently returned traveller who went through hotel quarantine, but they're not sure how it got from the returned traveller to the couple in Sydney's eastern suburbs. We know that at least one person uh,
3: has been going around Greater Sydney with the virus. We don't know who they are. We don't know who they've been in contact with. We don't know where they've visited.
1: That's the New South Wales Premier Gladys Berejiklian speaking as she announced that residents in and around Greater Sydney will have to wear masks on public transport and in indoor venues until Sunday... And you can only have 20 visitors at your house.
0: Yeah, I think that's probably stuffed up some relatives who are intending to have a little bit more than 20 people for Mother's Day this Sunday. Oh. They're going to have to cull some family members, <laughs> the least favourites, no longer invited.
1: Yeah, I was in a shop last night as 5pm clicked over in Sydney. I
0: Wait, you a... have to wear a mask after 5?
1: Yeah, so we walked into the shop and no one was wearing masks and then partway through our time in the shop, as we were looking at prams, um, <laughs> <laughs> um, the staff all put on masks. Like, oh, oh, we need our masks.
0: Yeah, well, New Zealand's also paused flights from Sydney to Auckland for 48 hours. This started pretty much at midnight last night. Um, and there's been 6,000 people from Sydney who've arrived in uh, NZ over the last few days. They're going to be contacted as well just to see if they've been to any of the areas where this infected couple has been. It's, um, it's annoying, but you know. It's one of the prerequisites for the trans-Tasman bubble, so if you want it, you have to put up with the snap closures.
1: Well, I'm planning to go in two months, so it's very interesting to see how it works in these scenarios. Yeah,
0: bon courage to you.
1: And the Prime Minister will announce today repatriation flights from India will restart as soon as the travel ban is lifted. The early evidence indicates that that temporary pause to the 15th of May is on track.
0: Yeah, so the PM has said that so far uh, the ban has helped in taking the strain off the hotel quarantine system. Now, priority is going to be given to around 900 vulnerable Australians in the country and all the arrivals are going to be taken immediately to the Howard Springs quarantine facility near Darwin.
1: Yeah, which I believe they've expanded the capacity of in the meantime.
0: That's right. And it's an open facility as well. It's sort of like a school camp with demountables, so there's a lot more outdoor space there.
1: Yeah, and I think, you know, the government's copped a lot of heat, particularly for the penalties on anyone who broke the rules around returning from India. But if they are able to really nail their response once this pause ends Mm. on May 15, then a lot of people will be like, okay, I sort of get the strategy.
0: Yeah, Meanwhile, most of the Australian cricket players in the Indian Premier League have arrived in the Maldives.
1: About 30 players and staff got on a a chartered flight and they're all wearing full-blown PPE and they flew into the Maldives, um, which sounds very luxurious because it is a beautiful place bunch of islands, great surf, great resorts. But it turns out the Maldives is having a bit of a COVID surge as well. Um, They're at around 700 cases a day, which is triple where they've been at their worst point in the whole pandemic. It's about where Melbourne was, but the Maldives has one tenth of the population.
0: Oh, that doesn't sound good at all.
1: Yeah, you can choose your island though. So, you know. (laughs) Choose the right island.
0: So you make it sound like a video game. It's not quite that. Um, I'm sure there'll be people in India, no doubt, Australians breathing a massive sigh of relief, really counting down to that May 15 date. The gentleman who was actually bringing the court case against the federal government for criminalising returned travellers from India, we brought you this story yesterday, he's 73 years old. He went to visit family and friends in March last year Mm. and has been stuck there for more than 12 months.
1: The other bloke to keep in mind is Michael Hussey, the former Test batsman. Yep, he's is got. a batsman? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. The...
0: I love how you had to check with our producer as to whether he was a batsman or not.
1: Pretty sure he was a batsman. Uh, anyway, he got COVID, so he's still stuck it in here and everyone's left without him.
0: And former NRL star Jared Hayne has been sentenced to more than five years in prison amid violent scenes outside the courtroom in
4: Newcastle. Get off your...
1: Yeah, so that's from outside the court where Hayne was sentenced to five years and nine months behind bars for the rape of a woman in 2018 after a jury found him guilty in March.
0: Yeah, supporters of Jared Hayne clashed with the media and one person allegedly spat in the direction of the female victim as she left the court. Hayne will have to serve three years and eight months before he can be considered for parole.
1: And police have arrested a man in Melbourne after he allegedly drove a truck into pedestrians before fleeing the crash scene.
0: Yeah, two people were left in a critical condition and three others were injured after the accident near Melbourne's South Bank, where a truck mounted the footpath and knocked over a traffic light while trying to turn left.
1: Authorities then tracked down the 64-year-old driver to a suburb more than 20 Ks away after he uh, allegedly fled, and then when they found him, they arrested him.
0: And I love this story so much. It could be the cure we need for COVID. Um, Scientists in the Netherlands have trained bees to use their very keen sense of smell to detect samples of COVID-19.
1: To train the bees, they gave them sugary water as a reward after showing them samples infected with COVID-19. And if the sample wasn't infected, the bees didn't get a reward.
0: Yeah, so they basically got used to this system, right? And they were able to kind of spontaneously stick out their tongues or what's called the proboscis um, to receive the reward when they were presented with an infected sample. It's like Pavlov's bees.
1: Mm, So that means the bees were able to identify samples with COVID.
0: Yeah, in a matter of seconds, which, you know, tests take days. Who knows? Maybe we could, (laughs) could we be getting tested by bees? Get some
1: bees down at Bondi Beach right now.
0: (laughs) This is total speculation, by the way. It's not actually happening, but it's interesting.
1: Well, they're working on it. The scientists say it could be a cheap alternative to regular tests, um, yeah. which are more expensive and more time consuming. So go the bees. All right, in a moment, we're talking to Coalition Senator Andrew Bragg.
0: It looked like a breakthrough moment, standing in front of Uluru, a powerful statement on how Australia could fix its relationship with its Indigenous people. We seek constitutional reforms to empower our people and take a rightful place in our own country.
1: That's part of the Uluru Statement from the Heart being read out in May 2017 by Indigenous academic Professor Megan Davis.
0: When we have power over our destiny, our children will flourish. They will walk in two worlds and their culture will be a gift to their country. So this statement came about after years of debate. Um, Around 250 Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander leaders met at Uluru and wrote the statement which outlined a path towards recognition of Indigenous Australians in the Constitution.
1: It called for two key pieces of reform. The first, the establishment of a First Nations voice to Parliament enshrined in the Australian Constitution.
0: And the second, the establishment of something called a Makarata Commission to supervise agreements between governments and Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples.
1: Yeah, and that involved a truth-telling process as well. Uh, Now, soon after that statement came out, it was shot down by the Prime Minister at the time, Malcolm Turnbull. It would be, in effect a third chamber. Now, as to its prospects at a referendum, it would have no prospect of success whatsoever.
0: Yeah, Malcolm Turnbull shot it down very swiftly. He said it was not desirable. He said that it was low on detail. He said that it would bring about this very radical change that wouldn't be accepted by the Australian people. Despite his opposition to the statement, though, support for it and the pathway forward hasn't ever gone away.
1: And now a member of the same political party, the Liberal Party, has written an important book arguing that it's the Liberal Party that should be following through on this statement. This comes from a 36-year-old senator from New South Wales who's only been in parliament for two years. And he's not some crazy outlier. His name's Andrew Bragg, and he's got the Prime Minister, the Treasurer, the South Australian Liberal Premier, and a number of other senior liberals to support this book in its launch this week.
0: The name of the book is Baraja, The Liberal Case for National Reconciliation. Now, the book's title means tomorrow in the Darunga language of the Yuin people, and it came out this week.
1: Andrew, thanks for joining us on the briefing. You've gone deep on this issue. You've consulted the Yuin people on the south coast of New South Wales to use their language and artwork in your book. You've obviously done a lot of research. Um, You've also stepped out publicly, supporting a position that most Labor and Greens would back. Now, you're a non-Indigenous former accountant who only got into the Senate two years ago, but you're pushing really hard on this issue. What's driving your passion?
2: I mean, I'm 36 years old, and for the whole of my lifetime, we've discussed reconciliation and recognition, but I felt that we really haven't made enough progress. I think we need some non-Indigenous people to wade into this debate, not to speak for Indigenous people, but to help deliver on some of these important commitments.
0: Your book essentially sort of advocates what the Uluru Statement has been calling for. Why do you think that that statement sends us in the right direction?
2: Well, this is the third serious statement that's been put out by Indigenous people. So the first one was the Bark Petitions in Mm. 1963. Then there was the Barunga Statement in, in 1988, which Bob Hawke shed tears over, but of course didn't do anything about. And now we've had the Uluru Statement in 2017. And it is really saying, look, we want to be heard. We want some agency. We want to be included in the Constitution. And I think as a patriot, I think that's a really good set of messages and something that I would like to see us deliver.
1: Otherwise, there might not be a fourth statement. Part of what's interesting about your... I guess the fact that you're making this argument is that you're from the Conservative side of Parliament. Now, if someone from Labour had written this book, no one would have blinked and we probably wouldn't have had you on the podcast, to be (laughs) frank. But (laughs) you argue this change has to come from your side of politics. Why is that? The Liberal Party
2: has, uh, like the Labour Party, a record which has been both good and bad on Indigenous affairs, but there has been some significant achievements. Uh, Voting rights in 1962... The referendum in 67, those were both Liberal governments. And then, of course, Malcolm Fraser passed his land rights in 1976. So I do think that my party is the party most likely to be able to carry the rest of the country at a referendum.
0: The thing is, though, when this statement was announced in 2017, it was very quickly shot down by the Prime Minister at the time, who was Malcolm Turnbull. He -hmm. said that it would create this third chamber in Parliament and that we didn't need that to happen. One, what do you make of the way that it was shot down by Malcolm Turnbull in 2017? And how do you think that you can forge a path forward within the party that did that?
2: It was never going to be a third chamber, and I think that is uh, wrong and hurtful. If I ask for agency and I'm asking to have a say over laws and policies which affect me, I don't think that's a third chamber. And one of the key Liberal arguments here is Indigenous people are the only Australians that have a whole bunch of laws made for them because of of their race. Native title, land rights, heritage protection, Aboriginal corporations, there are 18 different laws. And so I think that if you're going to make special laws for people, you have to give them a special system to engage and consult them on those laws. And to do otherwise would be illiberal.
1: So there's a big consultation process that your government set up into what that voice might be Ken White, the Indigenous Affairs Minister, is managing that. It doesn't go to the point of enshrining it in the constitution. So does that mean it's in conflict with the Uluru Statement, which also, I might add, was already a consultative process? I think we should put
2: a amendment to the people, which would be a fairly minimal amendment in the constitution. And that amendment would require the Commonwealth to engage Indigenous people when they make these sort of laws and then the voice would be legislated. So it would remain under the the control of the parliament, but it would be an obligation in the constitution on the the federal government, on the Commonwealth. I mean, let's not forget that the constitution still has no reference to the 60,000 years of history of this uh, continent. That is a huge hole in our constitution.
0: So where's your party at now? Because in 2017 it was a no. Mm. Does Scott Morrison back you on this? Does he back developing a voice and then having a referendum that enshrines it in the Constitution?
2: The PM's record in this space, as he says in the foreword to this book, has been to listen to indigenous people, but he's also been prepared to put this process in place, which I think is a terribly important process.
1: So you seem to have brought your fellow coalition MPs with you on this. I imagine, you know, thinking about Malcolm Turnbull and how he sort of struggled to get on with his own party and often pissed off his own colleagues. You've got the, the mm. treasurer, you've got the prime minister backing this book. Have you sort of been doing the backgrounding to sort of make sure that you can make this statement and tank them with you? I'm interested in your relationship with the party given you're stepping out as a backbencher and making such a strong statement.
2: My senior colleagues
1: in the cabinet are not
2: endorsing every word in my book, but in terms of the federal colleagues, you know, I think it's a debate that they're wanting to have. There would clearly be a lot of controversy about a about any referendum. I mean, don't forget we haven't had a successful referendum for more than 42 years. The last one was 1977. We would want to take a commitment to hold a referendum very seriously. I'm committed to working with my colleagues. Of course, there are mixed views, but I, I just make this point that the damage that was done inside my party on this Uluru statement was done because people called it the third chamber. And then there has been a campaign called Race Has No Place, which totally misunderstands the way the constitution is drafted and totally misunderstands the way that Australian history, modern Australian history, has worked out. I mean, as I say, we we make laws every day in Australia which which are for Mm. Indigenous people based on their race. Yeah. So that ship sailed. We have that, right? And even Mm. one nation would say that we should have native title, that we should have land rights. So we're going to have these laws. It's part of the Australian system now. And so I think to deny the people that have these laws made for them a special system over those laws
1: is illiberal. Some would say, but democracy does that because they get to vote in the election.
2: Yeah, but they have special laws made for them.
1: I mean, I don't know that you have special laws made for you or
2: I have special laws made for me. So I think you have to have a system to provide uh, input on laws and policies which are made for particular groups of people. And moreover, this is what the Indigenous people are saying they want to have as the constitutional recognition.
0: Do you have an ideal timeframe here? What should the question to the Australian public be?
2: I think we should commit to hold a referendum in the next term. So I think one of the key points here is having the voice uh, under the parliament's control, but putting that obligation onto the Commonwealth. And I think that's a something that we should do in the next term. John Howard put constitutional recognition on the agenda in 2007. So that's almost 15 years ago. And I think it's very important that we try and bring this this debate
1: to a head. You argue to keep Australia Day on Jan 26, but to create a new day on Jan 27. But I wonder if that still anchors this national celebration to something that's very traumatic, you know, the, the marking of the first fleet. It, that, that seems to be a bit of a challenging point to your yeah. argument.
2: Well, another part of the Uluru Statement is about truth-telling. And I'm I'm a big believer in truth-telling. I think we should tell the full balance of our history. There is good and there is bad. And I think that removing Australia Day would be a denial of our history. That was still a very significant day in the history of this continent. And the way that it's marked now, quite respectfully, uh, I think means that you can keep Australia Day, but then add a new day, the next day, I've called it Barrage Day, which means tomorrow, where you can have a day which marks the Indigenous contribution to Australia.
1: That's Liberal MP Andrew Bragg. Uh, Let's get an Indigenous reaction to Andrew Bragg's ideas.
0: Yeah, Rachel Perkins is an Indigenous filmmaker. She's also the daughter of renowned Aboriginal activist Charlie Perkins. Rachel, is it important uh, that someone from the conservative side of politics is actually making this argument?
4: Yes, well, we know that the Labor Party uh, already supports the Uluru Statement from the Heart, as do the Greens. So it's really up to the Liberal National Parties who are in power and are quite likely to be in power at the next election to be able to realise this. Because we know that in Australia, our constitution is very difficult to change. We need a majority of voters in a majority of states. And so we need political leadership to get the Australian people you know, completely on board with this. So yes, I think it's crucial to have the Liberal National Party on board.
1: So how do you see this going forward? Because I imagine you you would have had many false hopes about big changes coming from the federal government. Um, you know, it does seem like Andrew Bragg's at least got Scott Morrison to make a statement of support for him having this view, um, but he has also set up this process of consultation around what a voice to parliament might look like. How much hope and how do you see this playing out from here?
4: Well, I think you've got to have hope because hope brings change and you know you've got to work towards change I believe to make our country better and it might be naive of me but I continue to be positive on this front and the government always said that they were going to establish the voice before they would consider enshrinement and that was so that the Australian public could understand what they might be voting for eventually and so they have put that process in place so that is a real win
1: Rachel Perkins, Indigenous filmmaker. Yeah, really interesting statement by Andrew Bragg, isn't it?
0: Yeah, and he's only 36, (laughs) which I kind of got triggered at because I'm also only 36 (laughs) and I certainly haven't written a book that's that detailed and and researched and makes such a strong case.
1: You haven't even started your book yet, despite signing the deal. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Thanks for the reminder. I'm going now. Can I leave? All
1: right. That is it for the Monday to Friday episodes of The Briefing, uh, which means Saturday morning, you know what drops into the feed. It's the weekend briefing with Jamila Rizvi. Jamila, who's on this week?
3: This Saturday, I am chatting with Rob Millsy Mills, who I think most people know best for being on the first season of Australian Idol. And that is where I fell in love with him as a teenager watching him on screen and he has since become a performer in so many different roles. He is a musical theatre standard in that leading man role now in Australia. He has been on Neighbours as well as a bunch of different reality TV shows. He's got a bit of a bad boy kind of reputation because of a dalliance he had with Paris Hilton about a million years ago. But what I really found in this chat with Rob was just how self-aware and generous he is with his time and his thoughts. And I think everyone is really going to enjoy this one.
1: All right, Rob Mills on the weekend briefing. Thank you for that, Jamila. Um, Hope you have an amazing weekend and a big shout out to our hardworking team here at The Briefing that make this show possible. I'll catch you Monday.
2: Listener.